Isaiah chapter 55, and we're reading together from verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord, while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy, and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. As I was preparing today, or for today, my mind returned to Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. It's a verse that you will be familiar with, I'm sure, many of you. It seems a long time ago since we were in Isaiah chapter 1. But that verse says this, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
And I thought, how welcoming the Saviour is. How willing the Holy Lord God is to condescend to meet us at our point of need. To reason with our darkened minds and bring us good news. And then I thought of this opening verse and I was linking them both together. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What a kind, patient and generous saviour we have. How forgiving of our wicked pride. How considerate of our weaknesses. When he could command, he invites. When it is his right to demand, he encourages. When he might enforce, he reasons, wooing us tenderly to win our hearts and earn our love. And it is true that the Lord makes his people willing in the day of his power. But his is soft power, not hard power. We are not forced, we are convinced. The Lord's little ones are not squeezed in a vice until we acquiesce, until we submit. We're persuaded by sound argument and we are won over in conversation. The Lord speaks gently and reasons with our hearts. He addresses himself to our needs. He stirs up our hopes. He courts our affections and he quells our fears. He meets us in the barren wilderness of this world and he calls out to us in a dry sun-scorched land. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He meets us at the door of the court of bankruptcy and he says, he that hath no money, come ye, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And when this world exploits us and cheats us and robs us, he asks, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. And then when it all gets too much for us, 
and the world is too loud and too busy and too confusing and we wish that we could just disappear. He draws close to us in the way and he says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. What a proposal that is. What an offer the Lord makes to his people. What provision is set aside and reserved for all who will come. What a great salvation and what a blessed saviour we have. And if one should ask, what are these sure mercies of David? They are the spiritual inheritance that the Lord Jesus Christ won for his people on the cross. They are the blessings that he has secured for us in the everlasting covenant of grace and of peace of which we have been speaking recently. These mercies are everlasting. They are the everlasting mercies because they were formed in the everlasting love of God for his people. And they are committed into the hands of Christ, the everlasting word, the mediator of the everlasting covenant, they are committed into his hands on our behalf. They're called the sure mercies of David because David is a name of Christ the Messiah. Remember, that's what the blind beggars shouted out uh, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou son of David, have mercy upon us. They knew who they were speaking to. These are the sure mercies of David and they are vested in the Lord, the Messiah. It is Christ who holds the blessings of God's mercy for the church. It is Christ who holds them in his hand. Blessings, blessings unfathomable, blessings profound. Blessings such as justification and imputed righteousness. Blessings such as redemption and reconciliation and the enlivening, quickening work of God the Holy Spirit upon the dead soul of a sinner. Regeneration and pardon and conversion and eternal life. These are the blessings held. These are the mercies possessed by Christ for his people in the covenant. Everything, in short, that is contained in our full and free salvation. And all these mercies were placed in the hands of Christ when he fulfilled the terms of the covenant 
between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. When he fulfilled the terms by coming into this world and laying down his life and dying on the cross. They were given to him to be given to us and they are dispensed freely to all for whom he died. These gifts of grace are free at the point of need. Though they were not freely obtained, they cost the Lord Jesus Christ everything. They were dearly won on our behalf by the sacrificial work, by the death, and by the payment of Jesus Christ's precious blood for all our debt of sin. So that when the Lord God cries out, Ho! When the, the Lord God calls and, and hails his people, when he invites his people to come to the waters, he is calling us to hear and to believe the gospel that transforms the hearts of sinners and informs our minds regarding God's way of salvation. And the milk and the wine that he invites us to partake of freely represent the crucified body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified. That milk and that wine is pure and potent. It is the milk and wine by which quickened souls are spiritually fed and nourished. And it may sound strange to some people, but believers live on Christ. We feed on Christ. For all our spiritual growth and development must be derived from him. That is why milk and wine and bread are such good representations of spiritual nourishment for our souls. That is given to us, derived from the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in him, trusting in him, is how we grow and deepen our understanding of spiritual things. We begin as newborn babes and we grow and we mature as believers by feeding on Christ and drawing wisdom and truth from him. He says... Hear, and your soul will live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Isaiah wrote to comfort the Lord's people of his day, and he did so, he does so, by giving them a grandstand view of what the Lord Jesus Christ was going to accomplish. 
what the Lord was going to do. Now we've spent some time thinking about the death of the Lord in in chapter 53. Uh, We saw that the prize that the Lord would be given was the church, the, the people. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied that the Lord would give him a people. And now we see in this chapter how that union between Christ who suffered and died And the prize that he obtained is to be made by God. And this is what Isaiah is showing the people of the Old Testament. These Old Testament believers, these remnant people of God. He is showing them by giving them a grandstand view of the gathering of the worldwide church to Jesus Christ. The gathering of the Gentile nations to Jesus Christ as the prize of his sacrifice and his death. The prize which was his victory. And the prophet's language in this chapter is energetic and it's exciting and it's motivating as he describes the scope of the great union of Christ, the God-man, and his redeemed people. The covenant is fulfilled. Satisfaction, the blood of Christ, is provided. Reconciliation is made. Christ is set up as king in his kingdom, and his people are gathered to him. So, From the remainder of the chapter, here are three things that I want to direct your attention to that Isaiah told his audience about Christ for their encouragement. And I trust it will be for our encouragement too. The first one is this. Number one, the union of Christ and his church, and we're speaking here about the Gentile church particularly, the union of Christ and the church will be wonderful to behold. And I'm drawing my thoughts here from verses 4 to 7. The union of Christ and his church will be wonderful to behold. And I'm, I'm saying it like that because I want to draw your attention to the use of the word behold on two occasions. We've remarked in the past how the word behold is more than simply look. It's more than simply drawing our attention to something. There's a a stronger meaning to this. It's, It's behold something amazing. Behold something astounding. It's as if to punctuate the, the, the language to say, take special attention of what I am about to say. It's kind of equivalent to the Lord Jesus saying, verily, verily. Or, amen, amen. It, it, it gives a, 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 an added emphasis. Now, when we think about this usage... It is perhaps especially also important that we draw attention to the fact that when the Lord God is himself the speaker 
and tells us to behold, then again it requires our greater attention. And more again, especially if the Lord Jehovah is calling upon the church to regard the person and work of his dear son and he attaches to it a behold, then it means that we've got to give attention to it with all possible care. And in verse 4, first of all, the church is directed to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who as mediator of the everlasting covenant, is given, says Jehovah, for a witness, for a leader and for a commander to God's chosen people. These three identifications, these three roles are given to the Lord Jesus Christ within the covenant. And God the Father draws our express attention to this fact by preceding his statement with a behold. Christ is given to the church as a witness, a leader and a commander. Now, unfortunately, we're going to have to move quickly through this and we could spend a, a lot longer than I have available today simply unpacking these three names, these titles, these roles that God identifies, Jehovah identifies as uh, being laid upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant. But let me just say this quickly in passing. Christ is our witness. He was given to us as a witness. He is a witness in as much as he testifies to us of his Father's love. He reveals to us his Father's justice and his holiness. And he reveals to us the plan of salvation. Indeed, we may well say that all that can be known of God the Father is told only because the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed him to us in the gospel. He testifies of his Father's will, his Father's will to be reconciled by the Son's shed blood. And the Lord testifies of himself, who he is in his deity, what his mission is in coming, what his purpose was in suffering and in dying. And in his resurrection, he testifies to his doctrine. He testifies of his gospel. He speaks <clears throat> to his people and he tells us what his will is for the structure of the church. And he is a leader. He is a witness and he is a leader to open the way before us, to go before us and to direct us in the way, to encourage us to follow after him, to teach us how we should go, to guide and direct and to nurture his flock. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a commander within the covenant for his church. He is a commander. He is powerful. He is brave. He is victorious. He is inspiring. He is dependable. 
so that God the Father has given to his church Christ in all of these capacities and many more undoubtedly in order to provide and fulfill all the needed help so that the Lord Jesus Christ is not merely some abstract figurehead but for each of us individually a living personal help for his church, for his people, for each individual member. And behold is affixed to this messianic role as a cause for wonder and awe. We have constant access through Christ to a treasury of riches, to an armory of spiritual weapons and to a commonwealth of grace and goodness for every need in Christ. But there are two beholds in this little passage. And not only is the church addressed by God to look at Christ, their witness and their leader and their commander, but Christ is also addressed and he is called upon by his father to behold the church. He is called upon by his father to behold with wonder the prize that he has won, that he won on the cross as the church gathers to him from every place, out of every nation, in every age. And God says, my elect will not tarry. They will not be slow. They will not be reluctant. At Jehovah's bidding, at his instigation, the elect will, and I love this, run to Christ. The elect will run to Christ. They will run to him because running to him will glorify him and praise him. We are not dragged kicking and screaming to Christ. The elect of God delight to come to Christ. And they will not be held back. They shall not be prevented. The building of the church and the gathering of the elect is not about wrestling with a man's free will. It is about God giving his son the glory and the prize that he has won. It is about God giving his son the satisfaction he earned on the cross. It's crowning Christ with glory, the glory he deserves. So that here is a union being spoken about by Isaiah all those years ago to the people of his age to encourage and comfort them. A union in which a mutually eager two parties join themselves in marriage. It is a union between the Redeemer and the redeemed, the teacher and the disciple, the leader and the follower, the captain and his host. And it is a wonder to behold.
Christ broke the shackles that bound the church. He set the captive free. And now God calls his people to run to the Lord. To seek the Saviour. To flee speedily to Christ. Without hesitancy. Without reluctance. And to seek him while he may be found. In conversion, God the Holy Spirit effects such a change so that the wicked forsakes his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts and he runs, he runs and he returns to the Lord for mercy and pardon and grace. So this is the first point that I want to leave with you. Here we see that there is a union between Christ and his church that is wonderful to behold. The second thing that Isaiah says, and that's I'm drawing from verses 8 to 11, the second thing that Isaiah says with respect to the, uh, uh, the, the people of his generation for their encouragement and comfort is this, that these people will have pardon for their sins and that is a promise that God will perform. I've no doubt that Isaiah anticipated a level of incredulity on the part of his readers, on the part of his hearers Concerning this great worldwide influx of Gentile believers into the church. Now remember, the Lord's own spiritual people, even in the day in which Isaiah wrote, were just a few, just a remnant. The vast majority of Israel in that day, Old Testament Israel, the people, had no interest for the things of the Lord. That was the reason why they were being taken into captivity. That was the reason for the Babylonian exile. This was discipline. This was punishment against a nation that had turned its back on God. But there was a remnant people amongst them. And it was to this people that these words were written, particularly for their encouragement during this hard time. But what to make of the fact that here Isaiah was saying that what was to encourage them was that there would be a worldwide gathering to the Messiah, an influx of Gentile believers into the church. And they must have wondered, they must have thought to themselves, what these vicious people, these immoral people, these idolatrous Gentiles were to be numbered amongst the just of Israel? Surely not. A nation that knew not God would run to his side. Men and women with rebellious hearts would be taught of God, instructed in the faith and led into all spiritual truth by the Lord's suffering servant. Could it really be true? Was the Lord going to bring a great number of men and women and boys and girls from all over the world into his kingdom? Well, helpfully, 
the Lord gave Isaiah, the faithful prophet, just the answer that he needed for that question. Wicked, sinful, undeserving and guilty as they are, the elect will be abundantly pardoned upon the merits of the God-man. They will be cleansed from their sin by God sovereignly and made righteous in God's sight. And here the Old Testament saints were taught what the scribes and the Pharisees never understood and what took the Lord's own disciples such a long time to grasp. The spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom and Christ's body and the power of the sovereign God over the hardness of the human heart and the success of the gospel in the lives of the elect. The Lord says concerning this union of grace, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And he tells Isaiah here in verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. We don't think like God on anything. We don't think like God as far as sin is concerned, as far as Christ is concerned, as far as the gospel is concerned. We don't think as God thinks with respect to the church or religion, or holiness, or any other aspect of our Christian life. We don't think as the Lord thinks. But what a reassuring passage this is. Then and now. Because proud men want to dismiss God and work out their own plan of salvation. But the Lord tells them, he has already established a way and his ways are so far beyond our knowledge and understanding as to make even the foolishness of God far exceed the wisdom of puny man. Here is God working out our salvation and here is God gifting salvation to that mighty nation whom the Lord Jesus Christ has won and who are his prize in the covenant of grace. And uh, interestingly, the Lord says, you know what? He says it's as simple as the weather. It's as simple as the weather. He says the rain falls and it doesn't return to the sky until it has accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. That is, to water the earth and to bring forth fruit and food. It's interesting, all those years ago, Isaiah knew something of what's called the hydrological cycle. We used to learn about that in geography. The hydrological cycle. Isaiah knew about that. He knew that the rain falls and does not return to the sky until it has accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. And just 
as God's creative power has set in motion the forces of nature, so his saving power secures his elect, purges our souls, pardons our sins, sets us free to follow our Saviour. And the word of God that goes forth out of his mouth shall not return void. It shall accomplish that which pleases the Lord and it shall prosper in the thing which it is sent to do. This is, this is a great encouragement to preachers who preach Christ. The word, Christ is the word of God. They have God's own promise. My word shall not return unto me void. Right now, right now, where the gospel is being preached, it is doing its work. It is fulfilling its role. Right now, as the gospel is being preached, it is facilitating the witness the leading, the commanding power of Christ in his church among his people. It is calling lost sinners to pardon and faith in their Redeemer's blood. It is building up the church. It is nourishing the Lord's people. It is feeding our souls. I dare say it has never yet on one occasion returned void to the Lord. And here's the third thing that I want to leave with you um, from verses 12 and 13. The redeemed church, the church that Christ has redeemed, is an everlasting sign. As Isaiah preached to the comfort of the elect remnant of his day, they were given reason for praise and joy. Even while they faced the hardship of their Babylonian captivity and the struggles that they would endure as a nation and individually. But they carried with them the promise of the Messiah's success and of Christ's victory. And we all should Every day, let us remind ourselves of the Messiah's victory and of Christ's success. Let no one doubt the success of our Saviour. Even in these days when genuine spiritual hunger and thirst seems to be a rare commodity, let us too share in the positive message of this passage. And let there be an air of victory in the song of the redeemed. As Judah returning from captivity, as Judah returning, as it left its captivity behind many years, many decades later, as they left Babylon, we have left the prison house of death. As the exiles travelled home with joy, so we rejoice in the Lord always. As we head heavenward, 
as we get nearer to glory. There's to be a joy in our heart. There's to be a, 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 a skip in our step. And as I mentioned before, even these perceived barriers, when, when, when people were traveling, we, we uh, used to see about the, the wagon trains traveling across uh, 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 America, the Great Plains, heading for, uh, heading for the East Coast, heading for California and Oregon, and, and, and uh, the, 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 sorry, from the East Coast, heading to the West Coast of America, the, the, the wagon trains going, going on their journey. They would come to forests or mountains and they wouldn't know how they were going to get across. And mountains and forests appear to travellers to be obstacles in their way. But our mountains and our forests, our obstacles, will prove not to be hurdles at all. And the rough roads that we have to travel in this life, they will be occasions for praise on our way to glory. And what we most dread will prove to be unfounded. Instead of a thorn, there will be a fir tree. Instead of a briar, there will be a myrtle tree. Isaiah saw the victory of the Messiah and the glory of the church. And he prophesied by, divi by divine revelation. And he told the remnant people how the one true God in whom they trusted would come quickly to do his will and redeem his people. Brothers and sisters, do not doubt it. God's covenant people, old and new, will be eternally happy. We will be to the Lord for a name. We shall be a credit to him for all that he has done, an enduring everlasting testimony that shall not be cut off. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Amen.